Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Songs of Sorrow. It's how the indigenous Lenca people pay tribute to Berta Cáceres, the activist who fought to protect them and the environment. Berta vive! Honduran's March. Throughout this series of small changes, we've heard from individuals across the developing world who fought against indifference, corporations, governments, and even personal barriers to try and change things in their communities. Not only is it challenging to stand up for what you believe in, it can be dangerous, no more so than in Latin America. According to the human rights organisation Frontline Defenders, 312 human rights activists were murdered in 2017. Of those killed, 212 were from Latin America. To attack a river that has life, that has spirits, I think it signifies life. For me, that's worth more than the pain of this fight. One of the most infamous murders in this part of the world was that of Berta Caceres, the Honduran environmental defender allegedly murdered for her opposition to the building of a hydroelectric dam. She was killed, like more than 100 other activists since 2010, in what's become the deadliest country in the world for environmental defenders. Ana Paula Hernandez's work focuses on protecting people like Berta. Based in Mexico City, she's the Programme Officer for Latin America at the Fund for Global Human Rights. She visited London recently to hold a series of events on digital security and protection for human rights defenders. The line between private business, state, and often organized crime gets very, it's almost invisible in some of these cases. You know, they, these three powers work incredibly closely together. And that's also why it's so hard, and going back to Berta's Hayes, so hard to hold them accountable. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. I'm Lucy Lamble. You were studying sociology at university, but then you decided to move into helping people who were defending human rights. Why make that move? When I went to work in at La Chinolen, we were defending, taking on a very big case of uh, two indigenous women who had been raped by members of the military. And this was unfortunately a common situation because that's where about 60% of poppy is cultivated in Mexico. It's, so it's always had a very strong military presence. And the military has always had very little accountability for human rights violations that it has caused. 
And it's always been one of the leading perpetrators of human rights violations in Mexico. So for me, that was a that was a moment of seeing how this was happening, but also seeing the strength of these indigenous women to go up against the military, to denounce them. And that case, which started in 2002, continues. And just it's been a 14-year struggle to finally get a condemning sentence for the perpetrators very recently. There have been some particularly disturbing cases recently where environmental defenders have been killed for their activism. Berta Caceres comes to mind straight away, and you'd worked with her before she died. Can you tell us about her? What was she like? Well, Berta, I think for anyone that has ever, that ever came across her, uh, there was no way to forget her. She was an incredible leader in Honduras. She really was, I would say, one of the, one of the leaders of the social and the human rights movement. And she was a Lenka woman, an indigenous Lenka woman, who had been working, you know, defending and promoting the rights of the Lenka people since she was 16 years old. Her mother was an activist as well. And we started supporting Berta first in 2013 when she had received already numerous death threats against her, when she had been criminalized, so she had been charged on trumped-up charges of weapon possession as a way to stop the incredible work and incredible organizing that she was carrying out. Could you just remind us, for those not familiar with her work, what exactly was she fighting for? So, as happens in many places in Latin America um, and many places in Honduras, there was a concession granted on one of the sacred rivers of the Lenca people, the Guadalcarque River, and it was by, at that moment, a Chinese company who wanted to build a dam. Um, and these projects, these concessions are granted without the free prior and informed consent of the indigenous peoples that will be affected, that have their lands there, their livelihoods there. And this was, you know, among other struggles. I mean, her organization, Copin, also works very strongly on women's rights. It was, uh, Copin has always been a feminist organization. And, and Berta was, again, really fighting also for the rights of the Lenca women. But certainly her fight for the free prior informed consent and for land and resource rights was something that resonated both with the Linka peoples that she worked with, but all throughout Honduras. Um, she put that issue at the top of the agenda on both a national and a regional level. It was obviously a really shocking thing to hear about. What had actually happened to Berta? What happened was that uh, Berta was actually at her house with another of the fund's longtime grantee, a Mexican grantee, Gustavo Castro. And she was at her home and men broke in and shot, shot her and killed her. Um, Gustavo was also there at the moment. He was also shot out. He was wounded. And the people that killed Berta thought they had killed him as well. And at that moment, Gustavo reached out to me so that I could help him uh, get out of the house and work with other people in Honduras about two in the morning. So you had a phone call in the middle of the night? I did. I did. And a series of WhatsApp messages. Curiously enough, there's very good cell phone coverage in Honduras and things we know when we're talking about technology and human rights, things like these messaging services allow for this. Um, so Gustavo reached out to me and to a number of people that he knew could help him. And we kind of formed a network to try to get him out of the house. And it, I think, is, is a case that really shook, obviously, the entire movement, the social movement, the indigenous movement, the human rights movement in Honduras, but at a regional level, because 
Berta was such a powerful leader. She was such a, and she was such a well-known leader also. So I think for, for everyone who was saying, you know, if this can happen to Berta, who had won the Goldman Award just two years, you know, a year prior, who... It's very um, impressive environmental award, very distinguished international recognition. Exactly, considered kind of the noble, the noble prize of um, of environmental affairs. And, and she was murdered in this outright, outrageous way. And what happened to Gustavo? So Gustavo was treated terribly by the Honduran government. He was treated as a suspect after cooperating with the Honduran authorities and, you know, providing his testimony, etc. Instead of being treated as both a victim and a protected witness, they tried to detain him. And it was actually the pressure and by, and the support of the Mexican embassy in Honduras at that moment, I have to say, that didn't allow that detention to happen. But then he spent a month in Honduras without being able to get out. And it was, you know, the international pressure and very excellent lawyers that also worked with him that finally allowed for his return. But, you know, his life has changed forever. Um, Not only was he there to witness, you know, the brutal murder of of somebody that was incredibly close to him, but, you know, he has had to leave uh, Mexico for security as two young children, Um, a wife, and, you know, he'll always be looking behind his shoulder. There was initially a lot of concern over how impartial any government investigation would be. But there have now been arrests, haven't there, and and some charges. Does this give you hope that those responsible will be held to account? It's a hard question. I think, yes, I mean, both the director of the company and the manager of social and environmental affairs have been detained. So both a retired lieutenant of the army and a current active member of the army um, have also been detained. After the break, we'll hear more about the challenges that human rights defenders face and the work that people like Anna Paula do to try to protect them against the odds. These traditional protocols, like precautionary measures from the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, like a Goldman Award, like the visibility that that provided, those things don't matter as much. Because for these non-state actors, for these private businesses, for these groups of organized crime, it doesn't matter about naming and shaming. It doesn't matter about political cost. It doesn't matter about international recognition. We'll be right back. 
we talk GDPR and ask if there are more dangerous consequences than all the annoying emails. So suddenly, breaching privacy law, breaching data processing law has gone from a a bad PR move and a moderate fine from the ICO to the sort of thing that can close down your business. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts or search Tips With Everything on your favourite podcast app. Clashes broke out in the Honduran capital following a student protest over the murder of a prominent environmental rights activist. Welcome back to Small Changes. I'm Lucy Lamble. Before the break, I spoke to Ana Paula Hernandez about some of the worst incidences of violence against human rights activists in Latin America, including the murder of Honduran Berta Caceres. I wanted to understand what it is about Honduras as a country that makes it difficult for individuals there like Berta to fight their case. In countries like Honduras, but I can say Guatemala is not very different, you have these these oligarchies, which have an unbelievable amount of economic and political power. And that's why the line between private business, state, and often organized crime gets very, it's almost invisible in some of these cases. You know, these three powers work incredibly closely together. And that's also why it's so hard to hold them accountable. When you have the perpetrators being these non-state actors. You know, it's not the same as when you're dealing with the government or the state, and you can do some naming and shaming, and there are some international mechanisms that you can that you can use to try to hold uh, the state and the government accountable. But when you're dealing with private companies, when you're dealing with organized crime and with this mix, like we see in Berta's case and in other cases in Latin America, it becomes much more difficult. Last year, there was another case involving a Goldman Prize winner, also shot and killed, but this time in Mexico, um, Isidro Baldenegro. International recognition seems to only go so far to protect people who step up, like Berta and uh, Isidro. Berta had had countless threats against her life, and she was in fact granted protection, wasn't she, by the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. What did that mean day to day? And and what can you deploy to support people who, who are bravely standing up? I mean, I think this is one of the main challenges, and certainly one of the challenges that we're dealing with at the Fund, and with all of our grantees all over the world, but certainly in Latin America. These traditional protocols, like precautionary measures from the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, like a Goldman Award, like the visibility that that provided, those things don't matter as much. Because for these non-state actors, for these private businesses, for these groups of organized crime, it doesn't matter about naming and shaming. It doesn't matter about political cost. It doesn't matter about international recognition, right? So there, there is a huge challenge there, and that is something that we've been really working with our grantees on and saying, okay, so what can we do? For those of you who are working day to day on change and supporting others doing this very dangerous work, what practical measures are you encouraging them to take? Can you just break it down for us? Sure. I think one of the things that we've that we've said is that the traditional protocols that have existed for many years to protect human rights defenders are still important, um, which means, for example, physical security, which means, you know, that, that you have a good lock on the door of your house and your and your office, that your documents are protected, that you have cameras, that you have secure ways of mobilizing, moving from place to place, for example, in terms of vehicles, in terms of private transportation, et cetera. All these things are important, but it's not enough. 
And what we've seen is that there needs to be a much more holistic and much more of a collective approach to protection. So it can't just be focused on one person, on a leader. Everyone in that community, everyone in that organization is responsible for each other's security. It has to do in that way with also looking at digital security and secure communications, these messaging services that have a wonderful way, as I was saying, with um, being a very rapid way of being able to get news out of, of even sometimes being a protecting measure, as, as it was in the case of Gustavo and Berta, can also be very negative. They can also, you know, they can be hacked. They can be used against us. Online defamation campaigns and harassment has become a huge trend also in Latin America, these, you know, using social media, which again can be such an important tool for mobilizing, such an important tool for dissemination, can also be used for hate campaigns, for defamation campaigns against offenders. Back to Honduras for a moment. Copin's work, Berta's organization, has been able to continue under one of Berta's daughters. Is the community likely to be able to resist the dam? I mean, it's it's a fight that's gone on for more than a decade, isn't it? In terms of Copin's struggle, I think it's it's incredible that now Berta's daughter is the coordinator of Copin and that she is going to continue with her mother's legacy. They've had very important victories. Two of the main investors in the dam, which is the FMO and FinFund, two um, European banks, have pulled out permanently from the project. The project is currently suspended. Um, it hasn't been canceled. Uh, and it's still the the Central American Development Bank is still very involved. But the fact that these two European funders have pulled out and the fact that the project is suspended is not a minor thing. And unfortunately, the, the Aguasarca Dam is not the only project that, that Copin is up against. They're up against approximately 19 other hydroelectric dams on other Lenca lands. So again, this this is a continuous struggle. Is there a danger that we somehow romanticize the underdog fighting against the big bad corporation or the oppressive government? I don't think we romanticize them. You know, for people, this is about survival. It is about their livelihoods. It is about what is most sacred to them. It is about life also, if we're talking about some of these grave violations, executions, disappearances, torture. And I don't think that there's a romanticizing in that. I think for many of these communities, they've been fighting their entire lives. You know, if you think about the communities in Guatemala, for example, first they were fighting the genocide and the grave human rights violations committed during the Civil War. Now many of those communities are fighting the mega development projects because they're on the richest lands of Guatemala. And so you can see how this struggle in these communities have been passed from generation to generation. This is the reality that they have known, and it has to do, again, with, with their own survival and with their own livelihoods. Hearing this ongoing battle, generations after generations, taking on apparently oppressive, monolithic forces like governments that aren't changing, how do you cut through that? How, how can there be change in the region? Whether we're talking about uh, governments, whether we're talking about companies and private business, or whether we're talking about organized crime, for example, again, these are monsters. But I think for many of these defenders and for these communities, there's no other choice, again, because it has to do with how they can or cannot live their lives. It has to do with whether they can feed or not feed their children, or whether they have their housing, or whether they have the land to cultivate, or whether or not they will see their their sons or their daughters again. I feel so profound that you can't not continue fighting. Rios Montt, 
the dictator of Guatemala who ruled Guatemala for what was probably the deadliest years of the of the civil war and committed grave acts of genocide and um, crimes against humanity when he was declared guilty of genocide in a Guatemalan court. The judges believe that the accused, Jose Efrain Rios Mont, was aware of what was taking place and he did nothing to stop it. For the reason expressed, the judges believe the actions of the accused fit the definition of genocide. Where the Ishil communities, the indigenous Ishil communities, were in the courtroom, many of them who had directly suffered the series, the grave violations he had perpetrated, and they saw him declared guilty. Those wins are incredible. I think, again, it, it does make you see that the perseverance and the search for truth and justice is possible. If you have any feedback on this episode or any previous ones, do please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at, at @guardianpodcasts or email us at podcasts at theguardian.com. We're taking a short break from this series, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with even more interesting and inspiring people and their stories of how a small change they made affected communities around the world. Small Changes is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Lucy Lamble. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.